0: Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. So we continue our amazing journey here in this wonderful, wonderful book. One of the things that so impresses me about the book of Daniel, as I shared with you when we began this book, is that not only is it historical and not only is it prophetic, but it's also extremely applicational. And you're going to see throughout the entire book that there are things that certainly applied during the time of Daniel. There are things that are yet future, and there's application for today. And and tonight is absolutely one of those passages as we look at the first 17 verses here in chapter 5. The wonderful news about this particular chapter is this is one of those ones that's also debated because you have here... Uh, two men at the same time that are named as kings. And so the liberal scholars who have examined the book of Daniel say that this is an obvious contradiction. The problem is, is we have historical record that explains exactly the situation. It's not at all unusual in human history that when a kingdom gets very, very large, that there are what are called co-regents. In other words, there's basically two kings at exactly the same time. We happen to have archaeological evidence that proves that exact fact. And I'll share some of those things with you in, here in just a little bit. And so as we look at the historical record, it matches up with all of these people, all of these places, the kingdoms themselves, the individuals as they're actually named. And then it gives us this picture of what God's doing in that time that we can look at. And, and again, I don't think it's any accident that we're you know within two months now of a presidential election. And I think it begs the question, how quickly the world forgets. How quickly the world forgets when God has spoken. As you remember, as we left last time, as we look at this this ultimately great king, Nebuchadnezzar, who, in spite of all of his faults and all of his weaknesses, eventually gets it right. And, and in those faults and weaknesses, he attempts to persecute the children of God. He specifically attempts to persecute Daniel and his three friends. And at the end of that persecution, God so radically speaks to him that that king declares that there is no other God but Daniel's God. Okay, And in the process of that, now imagine this, and this is why this is so important for us in a practical sense today. If King Nebuchadnezzar is in the face of this miraculous witness of the Lord, we've seen what happens to Daniel already. Daniel should be dead. His three friends should be dead. God has miraculously preserved them. They're still alive. And even though the king pulls out all the stops and attempts to to kill these four guys, they're still around. The net result of that is the king himself gives his life, in essence, to the Lord. And so the king is now, if you want to talk about it in a New Testament sense, the king is now saved. The king has has given his life to God. And so the king makes the proclamation as king. Here's what happens. Imagine that, that if our president began to boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, imagine that that actually would happen. You can think about that in a national sense. If the king declares it, Not because it's some philosophical bent, not because it's some religious bent, but because of the absolutely glorious, marvelous, irrefutable proof that this witness that's been given to him, i.e., these guys that didn't die when they're thrown into a fiery furnace, these three guys who stood up when everybody else bowed, when that king makes that proclamation, it changes the fabric of the nation. Amen? Amen? That's what would happen. That's why we're going through such a tough time right now, because our president does not really proclaim the name of the Lord. He dances around God. Uh, we now find out that you know that we're going to remove the word God from the democratic platform. We're going to take out Israel from the democratic platform. And then this afternoon they decide to put it back in because it's not politically expedient. That is not conviction. Nebuchadnezzar had conviction. There's one God, Daniel's God. There is no other God. Worship Daniel's God because he's the only God. How quickly in just 21 years, because from that time to the time of chapter 5, 21 years goes by. In 21 years, the next king of Babylon is going to have completely Forgotten what happened under Nebuchadnezzar, who is his grandfather. And so, as we look at this chapter tonight, how quickly the world forgets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. We pray that God, you just simply speak to us, Lord. We we need to hear your voice. We're at a time in our own nation when decisions must be made. Uh, whether we will follow you or not, whether we will cling to you or not, whether we will lean on your strength or not. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us. Help us to not forget the past. Help us to not quickly forget the great things that you have done in our lives. Lord, the powerful witness that has been your church in the world for 2,000 years. And so, God, we ask that you would bless us as we study. And we pray that you would instruct us by your spirit tonight. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Verse 1 here in Daniel 5, and it says, Belshazzar the king. This is where the liberal critics have a problem, because there was another king. uh, His name is Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was absolutely known to be king as well. The difference is, is, here we have the king who's in Babylon, Nabonidus was in Tema, which is in modern-day Saudi Arabia, the northern part of it, in what would be southern Edom, could even be in that general vicinity of the very southern end of Jordan and the southern end of Israel. And so there are two palaces, one in each place, and there are co-regents. And so Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of a thousand. And I was reading this this afternoon, and you know, one of the things that I think has always been important to me as an American is that my president has class, and that my president is known to be a person of character. And one of the things that frankly has bothered me is the the current president sitting around raising his beer glass and acting like he's sitting at a party someplace. It bugs me. I don't like it. I think it degrades the office of president. And so as I read this verse, I can imagine here's, here's the king, the king of the greatest empire in the world at the time, that is the Babylonian Empire, and he's sitting here. He's basically a party animal, and he has no class. He's got zero class, and in fact, it's going to get much worse. And so, a little background here for you. Most likely, uh, I think that that uh, Belshazzar and notice that this is not Daniel, who, does, who is Belteshazzar, a different name. Make sure that you have those two correct. Uh, after his father's conversion, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Amel Marduk, becomes. Also the next king, and he, you can find his record in the book of 2nd Kings there in chapter 25 verses 37 or 27 to 30 or thereabouts. You're gonna find his record. And so there's a succession of kings here. This whole story begins in about 562 BC. By the time, uh, the end of this chapter takes place, we make it to 539. So Daniel is now about 81 years old. He's been in captivity since he was 15. He has been there a very, very, very long time. And he's seen kings come and go. He will have seen Nigrelasser. He will have seen Labashi Murdoch. He will have seen Nebonidus. He will have seen Belshazzar. He's seen all these guys. And from Nebuchadnezzar to now, what we have is this incredible witness that was at Nebuchadnezzar's time, powerful enough to save the king and probably his family, whittled down through carnality and through a lack of attention to the things of God down to where there's almost no witness left in the world. What a sad thing that is. When eventually there there is no powerful witness left in that nation because God's people have forgotten where they came from. In the kindness that actually evil Merodach had, he, he probably, I believe, came to some type of belief in the God of, of Yahweh, in, in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He eventually would uh, take pity on the great king Jehoiakim and would allow him to be uh, let go. And so there, there was always this place. And so... We get to another king that is that is very important in this study because he is the king that's co-regent at the time that Belshazzar is, is being uh, talked about here. And there are a number of things that we can look at. If you were to go to the British Museum in London today, you're going to find several different artifacts that are extremely important to this time. Uh, there's the Nabonidus Cylinder. It's actually a cylinder. It's about yay long. It's completely covered in cuneiform. It actually looks like a barrel. It's kind of a bizarre looking thing. It, it is the account of Nabonidus' life. You would also be able to view in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, two different scrolls uh, found in Cave 4, uh, scroll 2424, which has the account of Nabonidus' life in it. You would also find the Nabonidus Chronicles, and you would find the Nabonidus Tablet. And so all of these things have both of these guys on them. And so when you're talking about, well, it could have never happened, what it does is having the archaeological record that we do, it proves that these two guys were alive at exactly the same time, and that they were, in fact, ruling in two different places, because both Tema and Babylon are listed as the place that these guys ruled from. And so as the the Medes and and the Persians were kind of joining forces, and as they were rising up, and Cyrus II would come on the scene, which is happening at roughly this time, as these men's kingdoms were winding down, we have record in these various archaeological artifacts that exactly what your Bible declares happened, happened. Down to the naming of the places, and the people involved with very exacting detail. And in fact, when you, when you look at some of these things, for instance, uh, the Nabonidus Chronicles, which give the kingship of Babylon to Belshazzar and the kingship of what was then the, the area of Edom uh, to Nabonidus, it actually names the places... In, th- in their exact location at the time, and it does so using up almost three quarters of the tablet that they're inscribed on. So it was an important fact to the people. And the reason I believe it's an important fact is that they were then at the end of their time of glory. The Babylonian kingdom is about to come to an end. And so they're chronicling all of these things that are happening. And amazingly, in 1919, between 1919 and 1924, uh, the Nabonidus Chronicle, which was a big clay tablet, it now sits in the British Museum. You can go look at it along with the Nabonidus Cylinder. You can look at these things. And you, you can look at the translation of the script that's there, and it says that the king of Babylon was Belshazzar and is dated to the exact date of the writing of this book. And so it gives us great confidence that the words that we read were in fact written by the prophet Daniel because only somebody who had eyewitness accounts of the events would be able to record such a thing when at the time there were two co-regents. Because if you just got Nabonidus' side of it, you would have gotten what was going on in Edom. And if you just got what was Belshazzar's uh, side of it, you would have gotten only what was going on in Babylon itself. And so... Uh, Darius the Mede and all of these people that would come on the scene eventually in this, in this particular chapter um, take a very, very, very powerful historical uh, place in our, in our hearts and our minds. Interesting also, as we look at the evidence found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, specifically in those two scrolls I've already mentioned, they are written in guess which language? In Aramaic. And so the fact that they are about Babylonian kings, but they are written in Aramaic, the only way that that could have happened is if those that were of the Greeks at that point in time, and remember, coming directly after this would be the Medes and the Persians, coming directly after them would be the Greeks. Remember the head of gold, the chest and the arms of silver, followed by the breastplate of bronze and all of these empires that has already been described in in the visions that that Nebuchadnezzar had, these kingdoms are all very well documented now. And so the Greeks began to allow for these documents to be carried forward into our time. And so now we come to this passage of Scripture. In verse 1 again, it says in Belshazzar, the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of a thousand. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. Huge mistake. And I want to draw your attention to this before we move on. The reason this is a huge mistake is that God allows mankind to sin. There is no question. God could stop every last sin. Every time you sin, God could instantly fry you, turn you into a pile of ash, and send you off to Hades if you wanted to. God is God. He is absolutely sovereign. He could do that. But in his grace, and because he wants our choices to be real and volitional, he allows us this tremendous power of choice which can lead us to the ability at least to sin. God does not give us a sin nature with impunity forever. He has a limit to the things that he will allow in your life, and there is an end to grace. There will be an end to the age of grace. People don't like to hear that. They like to hear that grace just simply abounds, which is a truth. But grace cannot be trampled on. It cannot be trifled with. It cannot be spit on, and eventually God says, Enough, if you don't want my grace, I will give you the judgment and the justice that goes along with it that you have asked for. And that is why this is dangerous. Because now this king is flirting with what God has declared is holy. He says, These things were set aside for my worship, They were in the temple in Jerusalem, you took them as spoils of war, you've left them alone up to now. There are certain things, and we do not know which things they are, that God simply won't put up with. And that's what we have in this passage of Scripture. And so King Belshazzar gives the command to bring the gold, the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. Notice what he does with them, and this is a very important part as well, that the king, his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. In other words, he took what had been consecrated as holy for the Jewish people to worship Jehovah God in the temple in Jerusalem, and they said, not only is it not holy, we're going to party with them. So the picture is this. You need to be extremely careful when your liberty goes so far as to encourage you to take up the nonsensical view that God doesn't care about anything anymore. That you can just do whatever you want and God will turn a blind eye to it You can party with his stuff, you can destroy his things, you can cripple his people, you can sin without any possibility of there being any ramifications to it, and you are going to be just fine. God's word declares that that is not true. And praise God, he is long-suffering, he's not willing that any should perish, and he does have a very, 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 very long fuse. In this case, it's been a nearly 70-year-long fuse. Amen? They've been in captivity for almost the whole time. For 60, almost six years, the Jewish people have been in captivity by the time this, this book has gotten to this point. And so here the Jewish people are, and I guess up to now, Nobody has thought, hey, let's pull out all the temple implements and we'll, we'll drink booze out of them and we'll hang out with our concubines. When you get to the place to where you think that God doesn't care, be very, very, very afraid. Because he does care. And for us as Christians, that means you might be sitting on the edge of a really gnarly spanking. For people who are unsaved, it might mean that you might not see the kingdom of God. Because God will not strive forever with anyone. Long, yes, forever, no. You need to make a choice. He made the wrong choice. And they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. The king and his lords, and his wives, and his concubines drank from them, and they drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In other words, I think they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I believe that they took it so far as to say, what? Nebuchadnezzar, that conclusion he came to, that there's only one God, that's a bunch of hooey. That conclusion that Jesus is the only way, a bunch of bunk. Not true. Matter of fact, we don't even think there is a God. Matter of fact, we not only don't think there's a God, we know there's no God, and we're so convinced of it that we're going to take the things that these idiots say are gods, and we're going to party with them. I tell you this, I think our country is very close to making those same types of accusations against the Lord. I think it is dangerous ground that we sit on. When we start saying that God's irrelevant, when we start saying that God doesn't care, when we start saying that we can dictate what is truth in his word and what is not, when we kick him out of the public square, when we say we don't want you in the schools, when we tell God you're not welcome at a football game, when we tell God for we don't even want you visible any way, shape, or form, when we tell God that those who trust in him uh, need a crutch, when we tell God as a nation that we don't need you anymore and we're willing to defame those who do love you, it's a very dangerous place. And I believe that ultimately though God is long-suffering, he will abide by those choices that people make. And he will bring the calamity, and he will bring upon those people the destruction that, quite frankly, they deserve. And I know that sounds kind of harsh, but I'm convinced and I am convicted that there is a battle being fought for the souls of people, but also for the soul of our nation. Because I don't know who preaches the gospel if the USA fades into in, into irrelevance. I really don't. It sure isn't going to be Europe. Might be the Christians that are in the underground church in China, maybe. Possible. Because they pay a price for, for loving the Lord. But I can tell you this. We got, we got people mocking openly the Lord God himself in the public square. We, we have people that don't care what god thinks and i think it's very dangerous and i think if god doesn't judge to some degree as billy graham wisely once said if god doesn't judge america then he owes sodom and gomorrah an apology because ultimately he has to have the same character he can't play favorites and though he's not willing that any should perish i believe he has one set of values And so, now some 23 years later from chapter 4, Daniel's now 81 years old. The events unfold, and Belshazzar the king begins to do his wondrous magic. How quickly the world forgets the hand of a merciful God. Now go back to where Daniel started in all this when he got there when he was 15 years old. And God... Time after time after time was merciful to the Babylonian people. The Chaldeans had the grace of God absolutely visited upon them through the life of Daniel and his three friends. Because God would have absolutely been within his rights to just simply destroy these people. He's already, the, the king of Babylon has already taken the children of God captive from God's land and God's holy city, Jerusalem. They've taken along with them all of the things that were supposed to be in the temple to worship the Lord, and God still pours out grace. So you can see God's grace is very, very magnanimous. But now, after all of that, how quickly they forget their eternal destinies. You have two almost polar opposites in Nebuchadnezzar and in Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar, though he's a knucklehead, though he does some dumb things, though he is proud, he's filled with pride, in fact, he still gets it right in the end. Belshazzar, on the other end, thinks that all of this is just a bunch of nonsense and that he's going to worship his God, and, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had it wrong. And so Exodus thirty-three nineteen comes to mind. For I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion, says the Lord. When, When God ceases to pour out his mercy, there's only one place left. When God stops his hand of grace, there's only one place to go. And I don't want to be around when that happens, quite frankly. I think it's why it's important for the church to wake up, it's time for the church to stand for the values that are biblical values. I think it's time for us to stop playing games with the junk that the world throws at us. It's time for us to stop taking the temple of the Holy Spirit and using it for stuff that is not of the Lord. It's the same thing. It's just a different time. And so Nebuchadnezzar received God's mercy, his compassion. The Belshazzar, just as is recorded in Mark's gospel there in chapter 3, Jesus taught whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven before they are guilty of an eternal sin. And I believe it's relatively simple because people have asked me for years and years and years and years, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's very simple. It is to not deny the finished work in our day and time of the of the finished work of the cross in Jesus Christ. It's to say it's not sufficient. God doesn't love us. He doesn't exist. It's to deny, in essence, the witness of the Holy Spirit in this world. So say, I don't believe it. It's a bunch of hogwash. That's a That's an unbelievable, dangerous stance to take because God responds to that. He responded to that in the life of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I believe, also blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He says, no, I'm not letting the people go. Don't care what you do. You can kill the firstborn. And I'm still not going to give up. God has his limits. And when he's done, he's done. As I believe Belshazzar may have just simply blasphemed against the Holy Spirit by rejecting that revelation of God's sovereign power and all the good things he, he had done through the salvation of his father, Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. I I think what you have here is a classic example of how far is too far. How far can you actually go and still be okay? And I look at it this way. I don't want to know where that is. I I don't even want to go down that road. I, I don't want to see us as a people test the goodness of the Lord. I don't want to poke God in the chest, poke him in the eye, and go, you know what? Maybe you'll fry us, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have mercy on us, maybe you won't. But we're going to keep testing you until we find out how far we can push you. It is not a good thing to figure out how far you can push God. Because if you guess wrong, eternity weighs in the balance. How quickly the world forgets. As Daniel points out in this chapter, Belshazzar rejected the truth. It, it's just, it's so clear. This drunken feast is symbolic of the moral condition of the entire empire and its king. And think about that with national implications for a second. Think about the national implications of some of the things that are being fought over right now in our nation. The right for children to be born. Who would have ever thought that we would have to debate whether it's okay to kill babies or not? How about gay marriage? God declared what marriage looked like. He's the one that invented it. It's between a man and a woman, and it is for life. It's not a debatable issue, and yet we debate it. You you see, the things that we're debating have eternal, I believe, consequences to the soul of a nation. It did in Daniel's time. It did in Belshazzar's time. And he says, you know what? We don't care what God thinks anymore. We're going to do what we want to do. I think our world today is clearly in view, especially our nation. This feast was outrageous. This feast was sacrilegious. Its its participants were reprobate. And I think when a nation becomes outrageous and sacrilegious and reprobate, I think it's in very grave trouble. And I say this because the voice of the Lord is you. The voice of the Lord is me. The voice of the Lord in this world is a church. Certainly God can speak for himself, but he's chosen human vessels to be salt and to be light and to share the truth with the world. And if we won't do it, if we won't stand up and say, enough, we must stop. We we need to go... (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how many lives have been destroyed by pornography. It's tens, if not hundreds of millions worldwide. And yet, oh, well, it's art. You know, it's your First Amendment right to be a reprobate. Do you honestly believe that that's what our founding fathers meant? I know it's not what God wants. And so, if our constitution doesn't say, hey, you know, you should be a reprobate, and you should just allow anything and everything because it's free speech, and we take it so far as to say, well, if it's these Christians that hinder us from being reprobate, let's get rid of the Christians, where do you think that nation is? It didn't go so well for Babylon. It would actually end their existence. Babylon's, in essence, moral cup had filled up with iniquity. It had gotten to the place to where there wasn't any room for God to work. Nobody even cared anymore. And in essence, they were symbolically drinking from that cup that Scripture calls the cup of wrath. Isaiah 51, it says this, beginning in verse 21, And therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine, This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. God's always defended his people. God has always taken a dim view of those who hurt his people. God has always protected the nation Israel. As silly as some of the things that they have done have been, they are still God's chosen people and they are in God's land. And we are grafted in to that vine which is the Jewish people. We are not Jews, we are not replacing them, but we have been the recipients of grace through a Jewish Messiah. Amen? That's, that's how we came to existence. He was a Jewish carpenter. He, he was born to Jewish parents, and God still loves the Jewish people. And says, see, I've taken, taken out of your hand the cup that you made to stagger from that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put into the hands of your tormentors, you who said, fall prostrate that we might walk over you, that we might make your back like the ground, like a street to be walked over. God does not take lightly when the world takes advantage of his people. He, he has a limited amount of time that he's going to allow that happen. Psalm 75, verse 8 says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices, and he pours it out, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to its very dregs. In other words, to the very bottom, they'll get the last drop. I don't want to drink out of that cup. And what Scripture says is, it's a cup that's designed of his wrath that is for those who do not know him. I don't want to be a part of it why we have to be different. These people had become intemperate. They had massive impropriety. They were impious. They were immoral. Uh, They were finally indifferent. They didn't care. And basically throughout the history of mankind, just as Belshazzar lived his life, so when mankind has lived that type of a life, it has cost them dearly. And those kingdoms no longer exist. And those people have faded from existence. They have become, in fact, themselves irrelevant. When a nation says to God, you don't matter, eventually he will say to them, sorry, it's you that doesn't matter. Because he's going to be the sovereign king of the universe for all of his days. God's character isn't going to be changed by some party that is held in offices of power. God isn't going to be put off from being God. Somebody goes, wow, you know, they're pretty powerful. And you know, they got my stuff and now they're drinking out of it. I, what do I do? You know, how do I, how do I overcome this? I mean, they're mocking me. You've probably all heard, you know, maybe that pr- playground chatter of, Perhaps you or your kids or somebody you know—it's like, you know, oh man, they made fun of me, and you know, you just, you just I'm just going to go, so I'm going to go to the garden and eat worms because God doesn't ever take that view. At first, he's saddened by it, and he usually brings about a significant ability for someone who's doing it to change, and then he gets really upset. And eventually, Scripture says that when he's had enough of being upset, he pours out his wrath. Nobody should want to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. The moment those guests began to praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, they had crossed over the line with God's patience. If you know somebody who's crossing over the line, you need to tell them that they're near the line. Those goblets that had been dedicated and sanctified and offered to the God of the Jews, Yahweh, Lord of hosts. They were gods in essence. And God won't be trifled with. Verse 5 goes on to say, In the same hour the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand, On the plaster wall of the king's palace, it appears from the word that's used here for lampstand, it is the lampstand, the one that used to dwell in the holy place of the temple of the Lord. So here this party is being illuminated by the very lampstand that was supposed to illuminate the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. And they're partying underneath of it. It gives you a very keen sense of how far these people had fallen. And the king saw a part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him. And so the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked together against each other. In other words, he was scared out of his mind but I want you to see something very, very, very sad. It was already too late. It's already too late. And this is one of those things that that I often use to share, especially with men, when they're contemplating doing something really dumb and really stupid. You really think God doesn't care about that sinful behavior. He's going to bless your sin. I will usually take them. This is one of the passages I like to use. I said, so you think you can take the king's, God's, you can take the king's stuff, and you can abuse it and use it in any way that you want. Whether that's your body, someone else's body, their stuff, it's all God's stuff. You cannot do that. And if you think you can, you might want to read what happens here next. The king's countenance changed. It's like he had an aha moment. It's like, oh, yeah, aha, um, oh, that's right. Uh, You know, my dad used to tell me about those things. Grandma used to tell me about those things. There is a God in heaven. And he spared this country before. But he's not going to spare the country again. In fact, the Bible teaches that God's judgment may come at a very unexpected time. In fact, it says it may come as a thief in the night. That that rapture of the church may happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And what follows is another disaster. We know that God has an appointed time that the age of grace will end. It's very strange to think about it, but in a technically theologic perspective, there is a last person who will get saved. You ever thought about that? There actually is a very last person who will ever come to faith in Christ. And whether it will be the next second, whether it be the next week, the next day, I don't know that the Lord will begin by taking his church home. But I know this, the age of grace will be over. And what follows, Scripture says, is the time of Jacob's trouble, where the wrath of God is poured out on this earth. And so suddenly the fingers of the human hand appear, and they write on the plaster on the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king's watching this. And, you know, whether it was the actual hand of God, Um, I think it could very well have been. Whether it was just symbolic of the hand of God, the net results the same. Early in the miracles of Moses, the finger of God was recognized by the Egyptians. The Ten Commandments were written by the hand or the finger of God. Jesus actually said of himself, he says, "But If I drive out demons, there in Luke chapter 11, I drive them out by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When God has to go to the place of using his own hand to write anything down, it's a big deal. And I often wonder how many people are, are, are willing to just simply ignore it. And then how many people wake up with their knees shaking, knocking together, pale as a ghost. The excavation of this palace and were done in the early, uh, actually the late 1800s, early 1900s by uh, Hormuz Razam, They actually excavated this exact palace. It's about 173 feet long by 56 feet wide. It was a big building. And in fact, Saddam Hussein set out to rebuild it and never accomplished the task. He actually went about making the bricks to do it and stamped them with his own name on them. This place is real. But the interesting thing is, it's a desolate wasteland there hasn't been anything on top of that site since that time so 2500 years passed and there's still no palace there among other things that lampstand that was in there was kind of an interesting thing really because it was a constant reminder of the of the light of the lord of the salt of the earth the word of the Lord, the power of God. How many times did Nebuchadnezzar fire that thing up to use it to do despicable acts by? And all all that time he could have he could have seen that golden menorah standing there and been reminded of what his father had learned about Yahweh. They also it also symbolizes the scrutiny of God. That the light of the world shines on men, but man doesn't like the light because he loves his evil deeds more. But it still doesn't put out the light. The light's still there. All it does is make the darkness to where it's now those things that would be darkness are done in the light. They're revealed. They're scrutinized. And so these things began to haunt him. His face turned pale. God's dreams, God's visions, if you remember, terrified King Nebuchadnezzar. But nothing like what's happening now to Belshazzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar got it. His heart changed. He didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, well, I don't really care. And so verse 7 goes on to continue. And the king cried out aloud to the astrologers, to the Chaldeans, to the soothsayers, And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold put around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Interestingly enough, he uses the proper number of three, because Nabonidus was one, he was two, and there was a place for a third. So it proves that there were two regents in the land. Because he'd be the third ruler and not the second. He wouldn't be the fourth beyond Daniel. We don't know at what point in time Daniel stepped down from that position as the king's uh, confidant, as, as that person who was powerful in the king's court, but I can guarantee you Daniel wouldn't have had anything to do with this particular king and what he was doing. So he was not involved in it. So he says, I'll make you the third ruler. It'll be Nabonidus at Temma, It'll be me here in Babylon, and you'll be the number three guy. And said, Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing, nor make noden to the king its interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. You see, when God begins to work, when he's had enough, No one, no thing is going to turn it around. It's over. God's done playing. Their fakery is exposed. The tongues of those godless men were absolutely worthless. That's why the truth always wins. That's why the truth sets you free. It's why truth is always truth and you don't have to negotiate the truth. It just is. Belshazzar doesn't offer that second highest office because it's actually him who has it. It's not surprising since the king hates the light that he's he's standing there in the midst of this going, "I, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And the queen comes in now. And as we wrap this up tonight. And the queen, and by the way, this would be Nebuchadnezzar's widow, Amethyst. It's not because we already know That Belshazzar's wives and his concubines were actually in the party. And so the queen, because of the words the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. In other words, she was not already in it. So it's not Belshazzar's wife. I believe it was Nebuchadnezzar's wife. And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let these thoughts trouble you, or let your countenance change. How quickly the world forgets. She is doing exactly what people do today. She's trying to be politically expedient. She's trying to be politically correct. She's trying to make light of the situation. She's saying, ah, it's not that big a deal. Go ahead and keep doing that stuff. You know, it's okay. You can just, you know, I mean, God's a God of grace. And she may have even meant well. I don't want to judge her too harshly, but I can tell you this, what she said wasn't true, and it's going to get corrected very quickly. Don't let those thoughts trouble you, nor your countenance change. For there is a man in your kingdom. Notice it doesn't say that he has an office. It simply says there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. So it appears she gets it. She knows who Daniel stands for. And in the days of your father, that would be King Nebuchadnezzar. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. There's, there's a guy still in your kingdom who at 81 years of old, of age has the spirit of the living God in him. And that's what you need right now. So she's saying, kind of don't worry about it. Let's go to church. You ever had people in your life that are like that? They just live like they want to live, do whatever they want to do, and they try and make it good by going to church, go hit confession, you know. Go in, okay, I get 64 Our Fathers, couple of Hail Marys, give $47.14, and I'm going to spend two more thousand years in purgatory. God don't play that way. That's not how he works. You're either one of his kids or you're not. You're either a child of the king, and thereby a child of grace, or you are not. You are a saint, or you are an ain't. You're in, or you're out. You don't You don't get to choose. You're, you're either one of God's kids, or you're not. You can't play the game of politics. You either stand for the Lord, or you don't. That's why when people come to me and they ask me my genuine opinion about our current president, I will say to them, I do not believe he has a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And I am not judging him, I am judging the fruit of his life. And it says that he is not saved. He continues to pass laws that are anti everything God stands for, he continues to push for things that draw people away from the Lord and not towards the Lord. And so when someone does that, the conclusion that we must come to as God's children is it doesn't stack up to his word, it doesn't stack up to his character, it is not inducing the Holy Spirit to say yes and amen. And so it is highly likely that that person either is not saved at all, or if they are, they are very, very dangerously close to a couple of verses in the book of Hebrews. And so it says, Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give you the interpretation. Says, I know this guy. And then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? Are you the one that told my father about God? Are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that the light of understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, wise men, the astrologers have been brought before me, and they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give me the interpretation of the thing. I want you to see something very clearly here. He knows the truth, but he will not live by the truth. He's heard the truth, but unlike his father Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't respond to the truth. And that's why it's an extremely dangerous thing to continue to go to church and pretend and walk around like you're some kind of Christian And in your heart, you don't believe it. Because you don't get saved by osmosis. You're not saved because you're a member of a church. You're not saved because you're a member of a family. You're not saved because you're a member of a country. You're saved by the blood of the Lamb. You are saved by the cross of Christ and believing in Him. And so you can know the truth and still not be saved. That's a scary thing. How quickly men forget. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. And now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom and then Dan- Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Keep it. I don't need it. There is nothing you have that I want. There isn't a thing that your kingdom holds that is dear to me. I love this holy boldness of an aged Daniel. Daniel. Of a guy who's not exactly in his prime anymore. But so great is the work of the Spirit in his life that he still got the same boldness as when he stood before King Nebuchadnezzar and said, We're not eating of your stuff, dude. That when he got to that place to where his friends were thrown in the furnace, he's like, Hey, King, do you see the fourth guy in there? When it came time to bow down to the image, his three friends were standing up. And he's going, Hey, those are my bros. That kind of power. Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. <laughs> don't need them. Don't want them. Won't take them. Yet I will read the writing to the king. And I will make known to him the interpretation. I want you to notice something. The queen tried to solve it. By capitulating to the power of. Of the earthly king, Daniel declared his allegiance to the heavenly king. The queen said, "I want to say the right thing at the right time to the right group of people." Daniel said, "I'm going to say the right thing, and I don't care who hears it. This this is how we need to live our lives. We need to dare to be Daniel's." You know what? I don't care if I'm politically correct. I don't care if there's a whole bunch of people that disagree with me. I'm going to do what God's word says. I'm going to live my life for him. And I don't care who's going to give me what. I don't need it. If it means I'm not going to have the wealth that everybody else has, so be it. If it means I'm not going to have the possessions that everybody else has, so be it. If it means I'm going to spend some time in jail, so be it. But I'm going to speak the truth. Because at the end of the day, it's only the truth that matters. And so here, Belshazzar's wives are in the banquet hall. Nebuchadnezzar's widow, Amethyst, a grandmother in essence of of Belshazzar. uh, His ancestral line uh, handed down from Nebuchadnezzar and Amethyst. Neither the queen or the Daniel were actually at the feast. They were, they were both someplace else. They both had to be summoned in. So I believe the queen wasn't taking part of it either. But she was one of those marginal, walking Christians. If you want to look at it in a New Testament sense. Well, she, I believe she you'll probably see her in heaven. Because God's grace is, is good. And it's able to save. But I think she missed out on some rewards because she could have said the right thing too. She didn't need to say, O king, live forever. She should have said, O king, you need to change your ways. She should have said, you have blown it, man. You need to give those things back to the Jewish people and let them take them back to Jerusalem and let them worship their God because my hubby Nebuchadnezzar has already been down this road. We've already seen what this can do. Family of God, we know what happened when school, when prayer was taken out of school. We, we know what has happened to our kids when God has been deemed irrelevant. We know what's happened to our nation since we sat around figuring out that we're too proud to want to use the name of Christ finishing a prayer at the Pentagon. We, we know what happens to a nation who... Does not have the Lord God as their God. How quickly people forget. The queen had the spiritual discernment, I think, really, of of someone who had the Spirit of God in them. And obviously, Daniel does. She actually presented a a very favorable sevenfold testimony of Daniel's character. She saw the Holy Spirit in him, he had a keen mind, he was full of knowledge, great understanding. He could interpret dreams. He explained riddles. He could solve difficult problems. Those are all things that God does. So she got that part. How did Daniel get that knowledge? I tell you what. Scripture says. Proverbs chapter nine says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." That you can have all kinds of worldly things and still not be very bright. You can have all the right answers. You can look really good when you're talking from a teleprompter and you've been all made up. But how do you do when the pressure's on and it's just you and the Lord? She said, O king, live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't be so pale. But Daniel turns right around and basically reverses the queen's comfort with condemnation. says, keep it. How quickly the world forgets. Naomi of God, weird thing happened today. Probably many of you saw, either late last night or earlier today, uh, one particular party that begins with a D decided that they didn't want to have God or Israel's capital being Jerusalem on their party ticket. Didn't want to have it on the platform. Then later in the afternoon, they decided that they would have Antonio Villarigosa um, call for a roll vote to reverse that decision because it wasn't playing out so well in the news. In other words, it wasn't politically expedient. It was having backlash. So, oh, well, we better put God back in. And, by the way, we better put Israel back in there, too, because we don't want it to kind of seem like even though we don't really care uh, if they become an Arab nation, uh, we'll put that back in. I want to remind you what God's word says in Joel chapter 3, verse 1. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, I will bring back the captives from Judah and from Jerusalem, and I will also gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the valley of Armageddon. And I will bring them down to that valley and enter into judgment with them there. In other words, there will come a point in time when God will say, You can't mess with my people any more. And it actually says I will enter into judgment with them there and very specifically on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they, the nations of the world, have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land, it's God's land. It's not our president's land to give away to the Palestinians it's God's land he gave it to the Jewish people it is still his land it will never not be his land and he said it's theirs in perpetuity forever it is the land of Abraham Isaac and Jacob God's word declares they have divided up my land that's why God is going to gather the nations of the world together in the valley of Armageddon, and deal with them there, for they have cast lots. Notice this, they've gambled away my people. They have voted out of relevance the nation Israel, and have given a boy as payment to a harlot, and sold a girl for wine, that they may be drunk. Now to me, when I read that passage from the book of Joel, I go, You need to leave God in whatever political party you're in, and you need to leave the protection of the nation Israel in whatever political party you're interested in. And, oh, by the way, you better treat them with respect, because God says he is going to bring judgment upon the nations who mess with his people and his land. Belshazzar learned that lesson. And we're going to see what happens next. I don't want to see our nation learn that lesson. I'd like to see us have some more years to to preach the gospel and see people saved. I don't want to push God's buttons. I want to learn from what's happened in the past, and I don't want to repeat that. And I believe it's up to us as a church to, to preach the truth. Say, thus says the Lord, you can keep your stuff. We're going to follow the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in this precious book. And we pray, Lord, for our country. We pray for our president. Lord, I want to pray for President Obama right now. God, you could change his heart. You could change his mind. You could cause him to be uh, exactly like King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't believe it's too late. I, I don't see where he's crossed that line, Lord, but only you know. So we pray for a change of heart that he would not abandon the nation Israel. God, that he would not thwart your plans to to leave that land as a perpetual inheritance to your people, the Jews. I pray, God, that we would leave you in the public square. Lord, that we would leave you in our homes. We'd leave you in our lives. Lord, that you would be first and not last. And God, as we dwell on this passage, as we think about these things, God, we don't want to quickly forget the goodness that you've poured out. Lord, it wasn't that long ago, Lord, that this, this nation was attacked. We have real enemies that really hate you and hate us. And, Father, we pray that you would just cause us to be steadfast and immovable, abounding in that labor which is in you, knowing that in you it's not in vain. And so, God, strengthen us to that. Helps to live for you righteous lives, Lord. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.